Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm going to start with welcoming back Tony Jordan. Jan, hello. Thank you for having me. Well, recently I spoke with Marcus Zusak. It took him 13 years to write another book after the success of The Book Thief. And then there is Harper Lee of To Kill a Mockingbird fame. Her next book was only published after she died to intense curiosity and eagerness. This writing and reading relationship is at the crux of Tony Jordan's new book, The Fragments. Ah, it's a ripper. So, Tony, the author of a very well-accepted book was Inga Carson. Tell us a bit more about her. Well... I love reading, Jan. I'm not sure this, you know, I'm sure you know this. I read probably two novels a week. Oh. Um, I I got rid of the car so I can read better on public transport, much better than when you're actually driving. Um, I just am completely devoted. I don't really watch a lot of TV. I've been in love with books really my whole life. And this... Um, this novel, The Fragments, is really kind of my love letter to books and to reading. So I've invented a mythical novelist who wrote in the 1930s, and her name was Inga Carlson, and she was very famous, very successful, very famous first novel, um, and then her second novel, which was hugely anticipated, um, was destroyed in a warehouse fire, every single copy, and she was killed in the same fire, as was her editor, who was the only other person who had read the book. So we have this lost yeah. book. Because you just realise how big it is. This book, the first book she wrote, All Has an End. It sold the film rights for big money. Now, this is back in 1930, won every book prize and sold over 2 million copies with over 14 reprints. And all of this was the tail end of the Depression. Phenomenal success. So everybody's hanging out for the next word. Yes. But the fire, everything's gone. Everything's so, gone. What's the connection between that and Brisbane in 1986? Well, both of those times are very pivotal kind of times. New York in the 1930s, before the Second World War, the end of that in, in a war peri- interwar period, uh, everything is moving and changing. There are the forces of fascism rising in the States. And Brisbane in 86 is to me a fascinating time as well because it's the dying years of the Bielke-Peterson government. It's just before Expo 88 where no. everything kind of changes for Brisbane, becomes such a more sophisticated city. So I'm I'm always really interested in comparisons between things like that and things that are on the turning point of change. So that's why I – it's a this novel has alternating chapters in the two different time periods, New York in the 30s and Brisbane in the 80s, and the comparison between – very big city, just about to become big city. Um, I find that really fascinating as well. And in uh, Brisbane, 1986, the art gallery is just about to happen and this is where we're getting the the fragments coming. So the fragments is the title of the book. It is the title of the book. So what it's are the fragments? <laughs> the fragments are the very few remaining scraps of paper left over from this destroyed second novel. So... 
lost books in history are, is a fascinating mm. kind of topic. Um, there are a number of there's a there's a Shakespeare play that's been referred to in correspondence in the time that no one has ever found a copy of. Um, it, it, there's a Sylvia Plath refers to a, a novel she was writing in letters to her mother, uh-huh. and when her papers were went through after her death, there was no trace of it. Whether Ted found it mm-hmm. and, and thought yeah. better of it oh. or something, so there are a few of these little tantalising lost books in history. But the, this travelling exhibition is the few remaining shreds of paper, burnt, half burnt bits of pages that are left over from this mythical lost second novel. Now, this brings us to a young woman, Katie. She's, oh, 30-ish. And her actual name is Cadence. Yeah. And that's after the main character of this book. Yeah. So her father was a huge fan of Inga Carlson's, named her after a character, the character in the book. And um, she's just grown up. Just with this, you know how you just fall in love with writers and authors when you're young? Well, she also took it further and started studied her academically at yeah. university. But what happened outside the gallery? Well, this is Are where da, that, da, da, da. the crux of the mystery comes in. So she's she's just been to see this exhibition of these few remaining torn and burnt pages and she meets a woman outside the art gallery who quotes her, her favourite Inga Carlson quote from these pages, but it's not a line that's actually on the burnt mm, bits. Extra. And um, it sounds just too right to, to Caddy. Like she knows this, the voice of Inga Carlson so well, it sounds exactly like a line that should be there, but it's not there. It's not on the on the short, or torn fragments. And she also, this older woman also said with confidence, the mafia didn't start yes, the fire. That's and then right. she disappears in a taxi yes. and goes. <gasps> well... Caddy returns to university for a lecture about Inga Carlson and this it reintroduces her to her old supervisor at university and lover, Philip. Yes. But the lecturer was given by... Did Dr. you say lecturer? <laughs> <laughs> no, now I'm talking about Dr Jamie Ganovet. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's, he's a nice guy. Yes, he is. So how's, how's he involved? Well, um, this the fact that the idea that someone might have read this lost book mm. and might still remember some bits of it is just she can't Caddy can't get over it so she tries to think of every way she can to talk to people who might be experts in this area to try and find out if it's any possibility that someone else read the manuscript so it's kind of an old fashioned um, literary mystery before the internet age when you can Google something, yes, Jan. Yes. She has to go to the library and look at microfiche and, and trawl through things and go and talk to people and, and try and get to the bottom of who this old woman well, could she possibly had to. Be. She had to go back to the lecturer, lecturer's lecturer, Philip, yeah. and ask him about the mechanics of book publishing back in the 1930s so he knows she's onto something. Yes. And then... Doing the microfiche search, she actually asked uh, this Dr. Jamie Ganvray. Ganvray? Ganvray, I think. Ganvray. And um, he, ha- he owns an antiquarian uh, bookshop. He's also studied under Philip and doesn't seem to like him very much. Anyway, they go to the microfiche they, at the library. They share a pizza. They share many games of Scrabble and a kiss. But it's the investigation that is really the engrossing read here and the race to find out more 
be felt before Philip. You know, there's a quote from the book, two little sparrows huddling from a wedge tail. <laughs> That's how it felt. You know, Philip had the, it, 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 his fingers everywhere. Yes. Now, uh, Tony Jordan's talked about the story having a split narrative. So from Brisbane, 86, to America, 1920, oh, 28 to 36. Who is Rachel Lear? Well, Rachel um, is the character in the other chapters, in the in the New York chapters. So I wanted to create two characters, Caddy in Brisbane and Rachel in America, for whom books changed everything. Mm. So Caddy is someone who has grown up with a real awareness of stories and books and loves novels and loves reading. Um, Rachel came to it. She loved a few books when she was a child, but she was brought up on a farm, very different kind of upbringing. But in both cases, it's Inga Carlson, the the novelist who changes their lives. So I kind of wanted two women who pivoted around Inga. Um, mm. So Rachel grows up in depression, in the US in the depression, and she finds her way also to New York and finds her way to Inga's circles. Her father gives her the love of plants. This is a quote. Her father speaks the language of growing things, soil in his cupped hands held to his nose, the early soft leaves folded between his fingertips. But we know very quickly that he's also a very strict dis- disciplinarian, you know, when he sort of pulls the belt out from um, the, 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 his belt out from the belt hooks. So they move off the farm and into the city and... Her first job is in a silk factory. Now, why did she have to work there? Well, it's I really chose the town based on the silk factory ah. because I loved the idea of that slow weaving process about putting together threads, making a net, just like writing really, just like writing a manuscript. Yeah, and she has to go there to work there to fill in for her mother because her mother has been savagely beaten. Yes. Um, yeah, this father, you know, he's he's just horrid. Look, can, can I get you a read from page 121, please? Sure. So this is a, her mother speaking. Um, we're in the 30s now, I think, in, in America. Quiet now, her mother says. It's over. No need for all that fuss and carry on. They don't like it brought to mind after it's over. Men, I mean. They calm down at the end of it. It takes the sting right out of them. That's something you'll learn. Anything you want, you ask for afterwards while it still shows. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. It's just horrible. The 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 violence in this is really incredibly written. Um, the, the the slap is comes down and uh, on another time in slow motion. It's 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 really. Oh, powerful. thanks, Jen. And I think this is actually the the trickiest part of historical fiction for me. It's not actually the facts and figures. I can get my head around that and look up things and imagine it. But it's writing characters with a different sensibility than today. Why women accepted it. Yeah, and it's the same in the 80s bit with um, the the hijinks that Philip the the lecturer gets up to. But we we just, it's it's a mistake, I think, to, to transplant modern sensibilities about how we think about issues like this on the minds of people who thought about things like that quite differently. You know, I think that's that's what really made this family because you, you saw how relieved when the father went, just how much tension was lost and how how was the happiness in the family. But there was no way that wife was going no, to leave. Just, it just enough. wasn't an option for women mm. back then. But Rachel escapes and she finds a job as a waitress in a restaurant in New York. 
And uh, it's here she serves a strange woman more than once. What makes her strange? Well, um, she's dressed a bit oddly. Mm-hmm. She's kind of in a, in a man's coat um, that has big pockets. And um, so, yeah, she just behaves very oddly in the restaurant. It, it perks up um, Rachel's attention. Um, there's something really going on here. And she's a, she's a person who observes things, Rachel. She's quite quiet. She watches things from the sidelines. But she's not stupid. She sees what's going on. She's just a, a, a kind of a quiet person within herself. So she's not fooled by anything that's happening. And, of course, this strange woman slips a box of bonbons into one of these <laughs> big pockets. And Rachel thinks if she's hungry, why doesn't she steal bread or eggs? That's kind bonbons. of luxurious thinking about yeah. stealing chocolate is so foreign to her. Why would you take that kind of risk for something that's not So substance? she tries to stop them all being shoplifted, her being charged with shoplifting. Mm. But who does she turn out to be? Yeah. Yes, so she's Inga, our mythical novelist. So things um, things are quite underway by then. It's oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, this introduces uh, Rachel into a very arty crowd uh, and a political crowd in New York at this time when you're talking about the change. And she finds out about Americans. You know that that the people want to keep Americans out of the war. She, she also finds out about the different theories of. The, of the fire, what could have happened. But back to Brisbane and Caddy goes to work on the dark side. Caddy's helping Philip try to find this old woman and knows when she does that this woman's going to be hunted down by Carlson fans. Photographers will lie in wait. She'll never have another day's peace as long as she lives. Mm. So can't give too much more away than that, but just... Wonderful. And you spoke so beautifully about the books. You know, you can feel that. And and I really want to get in page 42 before we have to finish because I think this is Tony Jordan talking about the books that she really does love. Okay. So this is um, Caddy at the bookstore where she works. Um, Before she turns on the lights and brings out the vacuum, she stands between the two specials table with her eyes closed, arms outstretched. Fiction runs along the wall on her right, biography and travel along her left. All these stories, real and imagined. If only she could read more, she thinks. Books are time travel and space travel and mood-altering drugs. They are mind melds and telepathy and past life regression. How people can stand here and not sense the magic in them, it's inconceivable to her. Right, and we know school textbooks always introduce us to different types of reading and Inga Carlson's fictional book was um, on that. But what I've got to say to Tony Jordan is congratulations. I believe one of your other books, Nine Days, has just made the school text list. It is, it is. Mm, (laughs) It's very exciting to have all those uh, kids reading Nine Days. It's Nine Days, historically too, set in Melbourne. Oh, fabulous read. Okay, well, I'm going to have to finish it there and I'm really sorry because, you know, there was one more quote I could have done about (laughs) that Philip character, but we're not going to be able to fit it in. It's a fabulous read. Um, as we've talked about summer reading, make this one of yours. Tony Jordan, The Fragments by Text Publishing. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Chan. Love's Labour's Found is the uh, play by Shakespeare that is lost. Mm. So the, it's not found, it's That's lost. That's ag- absolutely it, David. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad well, you said There's Love's that. Labour's Lost, yeah. which is found, but Love's Labour's Found, which is lost. Yes. So oh. the, there you have it. <laughs> Just the, the strange knowledge of an English teacher. Um, but anyway, there we go. Now, being a 16-year-old male is fraught with problems, not least of which is losing an interest in reading. 
So another challenge for English teachers. June Laurie addresses some of the challenges young men face, as well as the reluctant reader, in her Blake Collider series. So June, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thanks for uh, having me along. It's a pleasure. Let's start with boys and reading. What happens and what's your interest in that area? Uh, My basic interest is I've been a literacy coordinator in a high school not not at this point, but um, I'm now semi-retired. Uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, working with boys who were were reluctant readers. Um, the main the main interesting thing about these boys is they often had incredible knowledge of all sorts of wonderful other things, and in fact. In in my books, I talk, I'm talking about the Hadron Collider at, at uh, CERN in Switzerland. It was actually introduced to me by a group of Year 10 students in that one day they told me that this massive machine was going to be turned on and possibly the world was going to end. So did they, in fact, need to hand their homework in to me? <laughs> And, uh, very logical, very sensible argument. And it was the first time I'd actually heard about this amazing machine from the, the um, mouths of babes, but really. But they didn't necessarily acquire through reading. It's almost by osmosis. Well, reading's in there somewhere, but not as often that we ad- how we advocate reading, but they've got an interest and a- an ability to learn that taps into other areas. That's right. So uh, when I began writing this book, I was writing for those students. Well, you've done some very interesting things in this series, and I've only just read the first, Into Thin Air. There's a second one, which is... Out of Control. Out of Control, Into Thin Air. But with both the story and the character... So Blake Glider is our hero, and he is actually going on exchange to Italy. Now, that opens up a wealth of possibilities. What, why have you chosen the exchange to take place? Uh, the original idea for this book came from uh, a kid who'd been on exchange to France and had fallen in love with someone and wasn't able to zip backwards and forwards to pursue that attraction. Um, so I started to think about how it would be if you could zip from one place to another. Um, the other reason I chose to take this 16-year-old out of the classroom was that many of the students I taught in a fairly disadvantaged area hadn't even been to Carlton. Like they, they grew up in the northern suburbs and we did an excursion to them taking them to readings as a... As something to get them out of that. But Blake Glider has got the usual problems of who does he identify with, you know, identity and such like. But going on exchange, it almost allows him to observe that whole thing uh, because he's taken out of his own self-interest in many ways and sees how others face that sort of challenge. Yeah, definitely. And he, he is able to reinvent himself in some ways and not be the kid that he is in the classroom. Yeah. Now... The love interest, of course, is an interesting thing where you've toyed with this convention as well. He meets Celine Napoli on the plane going over. There's a bit of a, a uh, what, crisis or um, challenge on the plane, uh, which they managed to survive. But you've toyed with the convention here as well. What have you done? Well, he has an attraction to Celine. Um, it, uh, it's a young adult book. I have to keep that fairly tame, but... 
he's definitely intrigued by her. But she's older mm-hmm. and she's more independent and forthright, which in some ways, for some boys, can be quite a challenge. Yeah, well, I wasn't in any way going to write a book with a um, <laughs> a wallflower character. I really did want to make this book attractive to both me- um, boys and girls, and I think Celine is a strong character to do that. But it, it challenges in some ways how boys see the world. So Blake being in a different country, seeing others look or looking at their identity... Uh, the role of women and such like, um, it, it really gets them to think about such things, uh, which is, is quite powerful. Um, but then Blake's exchange is in Venice and um, this provides then a chance to confront uh, a societal issue that is in fact one of society's greatest challenges at the moment, refugees and asylum seekers. What does he notice? Um, Blake does go to Venice, but he ends up in Trento, which is north of Venice. Right. So that's where his host family is. Mm. Um, so he is confronted by uh, uh, racism um, in terms of boys mucking around with um, the remnants of Nazi yeah, neo-Nazi type attitude, um, mm. the the right wing, the lack of, um, well, it's a nationalism. And you can almost understand it, boys uh, trying to assert their uh, identity, authority, uh, interlopers coming into their world. It's a very adolescent thing. But then when you look at it on a bigger scale, it can turn into violence and social unrest. And I think the thing worth noting is when I wrote the first of this series, the one we're talking about, um, I don't think Australia had gone quite down the path of um, atrociousness it is at the moment uh, in terms of those things. So in many ways, he's trying to educate other boys in Italy about that. Well, again, it allows him a chance to observe how others are behaving and the reasons for it. And it's Boys, adolescent males that lack um, sort of uh, purpose, direction or are challenged by their role and how they see themselves in many ways. Mm. Yeah, so that's part of the challenge. But now we get into the physics. (laughs) CERN, the CERN laboratory, the the Hadron Collider, the Strontium 500... This has a sort of comic book trope to it where a scientific accident like Spider-Man or the Hulk, something happens in the laboratory. But dare I say it, what you've got going on here is sort of plausible um, because we're, we're, we go into, or Blake finds himself now with a particular power. Um, can you explain what's happening here with the CERN Collider and Strontium 500? Uh, Basically, my challenge was to be able to make this boy travel through dimensions. Mm. And I was really fascinated by string theory and the possibility that that may happen one day. So I talked to lots of physicists. I talked to, you know, many science students. They were telling me that the physics was impossible. Um, So therefore, I had to come up with a new way to allow that to happen. Well, where the physics is concerned, when you go into things like quantum physics and string theory, Mm. uh, the world is not as it seems. And 
dark matter and the whole world when it gets below freezing and uh, really truly below freezing the physics operates in a completely different way so which adds a sense of plausibility to what you're doing because Blake ends up being able to uh, travel through space, so to speak. Yeah, through dimensions. I like to call it dimension travel. Yeah. (laughs) So you've actually tapped into something which in some ways is, well, dare I say plausible um, in that it's a whole realm we know very little about and even physicists can't explain it. Yeah, look, it's... it's, uh, One of the attempts in this book was to get ordinary students to think about science in a much more creative way. And I, yeah, I, I think once you start digging into string theory, it is an incredible area. I've tried to take very complicated science and condense it to, um, the point that that young people can understand, and in fact, I've been thanked by some of my friends for alerting me to how how string theory works. But also, when we all got the God particle that was around a few years ago, so in the second book, I tackle that. Yeah, oh, that will be interesting. So we've. <laughs> We go into religion in the next book, in a <laughs> well, way, or creationism, uh, etc. No, the scientists don't like it called the well, God particle. Einstein's letter has just been put up for sale where he mentions the word God, but everyone thinks it's something other than what it is. You go into the research for this. I mean, how challenging would that have been? Well, the challenge was to to take something that is very hard to understand and to try and simplify it on paper. Um, I'm lucky I have a brother-in-law who's a physicist who was a smart young thing in the 60s and was whisked up to America where he's spent his life in physics and science and he's a great communicator. So he read a few of... He read the first chapters of this book. Uh, The second book, I've had a wonderful girl Amelia Brennan who um, was a PhD student at Melbourne University and she spent a year at CERN so the great thing about that was she was able to get me a behind the scenes tour there. So accurate detail that's needed because CERN's basically a well, an underground world in many ways. It is, it's incredible. Across countries. You mentioned in their passports as well because uh, CERN travels through several countries. Yeah. Is that, is, is, uh, these days you can't go down into the tunnels. When it was first built, you had to have your passports on you in case you went elsewhere. Now it's all pretty self-contained. So you drive through the countries above ground and there's no checkpoints. or you know, Customs control <laughs> for the neutrons going around. The, uh, the collider would have been interesting. But getting back to where we started in terms of the readership uh, for these books and what you're trying to impart. Uh, Look, I'm trying to have a kid who rarely reads a book pick up this book and read it. It's not a complicated plot. It's a fairly straightforward narrative. Um, So, But I've attempted to make it pretty much a page-turner. Yeah, so I don't know if there's if I've chucked out way too many ideas in one book or whether it works. Well, you've got for kids. the reality there in terms of the issues society uh, societies are facing, like 
um, refugees and such like. You've got uh, the reality of uh, gender roles and those sorts of things. But then there's that fantastical element as well. So it's a combination of, of all of these sorts of things, which mm -hmm. makes it could be quite attractive to that reader, especially boys 14, 16 looking uh, mm -hmm. for something to take them further because they sort of drop off the edge after 14, a lot of boys. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Anyway, the book is Into Thin Air. June Laurie is the author. It's the Blake Collider series. So are there more coming? There's, there's In my head, there's three. I've done two. The second one is Out of Control. And the third one? When's that? Uh, that's then? still uh, in, in my head. My <laughs> yeah. brain, yeah. <laughs> June, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks very much, David. Well, this it. is my last week on a Published or Not. David will be around, of course. And if you're interested in some of the books we've read or we've spoken through the year, go into our website, a Published or Not, on three, through 3CR, and we've done a list of some of the books that we've really enjoyed. That we've really enjoyed, but yeah. you can go through the back catalogue of who we've interviewed yeah and, that might and of course there's the podcasts yes. and i found out that we have an international listener do from, we we have gail from north carolina that really re re listens regularly well i was told the other day that somebody from ireland listened in wow. uh to one of our interviews as well an author had a connection there so we're international oh, Jen. we are and of course this week i spoke with tony jordan about her literary mystery about a lost book and a secret love and mine was june laurie's uh, blake collider series into thin air